Today on episode number 801 of CXO Talk, we're speaking with Swami Kotagiri, CEO of Magna International. We are one of the largest uh, suppliers in the automotive space, by far the largest in the United States, fourth globally, about 40 billion in revenue, about 174,000 employees, and about 350 manufacturing facilities all over the globe. We are like an automaker without being one. You were CTO of Magna, and then you became CEO. That's a very unusual career path, I have to say. I always look at automotive industry as a very highly technical, highly complex industry. But I started off in Magna, automotive industry about 30 years, but really in Magna for about 24. Started off my career really as a finite element analysis, structural engineer, for those of you who are uh, technically inclined. A a little bit in terms of CTO of Magna, in that role, we have a voice in the product strategy, uh, customer strategy, and the roadmap. So you really have a seat at the table in uh, looking at the overall uh, roadmap of the company. so with that said, I think the, the, the next step uh, was not very surprising for us internally. Once you have the color that, and context that I gave you, I, I hope you find it was not uh, a really surprising step. You mentioned you had a seat at the table regarding product strategy and customer strategy. The automobile industry is undergoing such massive change right now. Can you give us your perspective on what's happening with mobility right today? When you really talk about uh, mobility, right, the reason why we use the word mobility technology is really going back into the history of mankind, uh, how people and goods move from point A to point B really define the economy or actually shape the economy and the history. And I feel it still continues to play that role. Uh, As we stand back and look at the landscape today, we're really talking about how to continue to make that, uh, like I said, safer, smarter, and cleaner. And as we try to address, for example, the cleaner part of it, automotive industry is playing its role uh, by addressing the call it the climate crisis by the tailpipe emissions, and the result is the electrification process. And in the past, electrification was really addressed as a means to achieve uh, uh, the regulation, uh, regulatory requirements of meeting emission standards and how do you manage and maintain that. But really now it's become a product differentiator, both from the consumers as well as from the manufacturers. So you see a exponential growth I- even in the last two or three years of uh, how we talk about it, how we are defining the product. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, from a larger uh, automotive uh, perspective as an industry, uh, it's interesting how the consumers are looking at a vehicle before the buy, uh, they buy. Like when we bought the vehicles when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, you are looking at the horsepower, you're looking at the ride-in suspension, uh, you know, the handling, uh, the, the power, and so on. If you look at the consumers today, they are looking at a different set of feature functions uh, to make their decision to buy the vehicle. 
which means how the vehicle is going to be designed, how is it going to be manufactured, how is it going to be sold, is all evolving and changing rapidly. So as an automotive supplier, as an automotive manufacturer, we are looking at all of these trends, and that's what I meant by having a seat in terms of the product roadmap and the customer roadmap. We not only have to understand how the vehicle is going to be designed, made, and sold, we also have to understand the roadmap of various OEMs because we are supplying uh, our customers are across the globe uh, addressing various segments uh, of, the, of the market. So that's what I meant by having the seat uh, at the table in terms of product and customer strategy. What's exciting is we talked about electrification. There is, I call the driver assist functions that are making driving experience more comfortable and more convenient. And as we head towards the autonomous in the long run, that's the next step. We are looking at how I would call the transition of the consumer experience from the uh, living room into the car. What music are you listening? What were you doing before you got into the vehicle? And how do I continue that experience? How do you stay connected? That's the connected piece of it. So put all of this together. Uh, we are really in a transformative times, but really exciting times. Vehicles are so complex and you've got this intersection of technology, innovation, and advancement with the human factors aspect, with the competitive industry pressures. As CEO of this very large organization that is so integral to the industry, how do you balance these competing pressures opportunities, innovations, and constraints? We got to look at where we stand today in the market and be self-aware. Uh, what is our strongest point? Um, how do we stay relevant going forward? Uh, how do we not get complacent even though we have pole positions in various product lines that we are in today? Because if you don't disrupt yourself, somebody is going to anyway. Uh, so as we go through the normal planning process, those are some of the questions we ask ourselves. Uh, what's happening with the world? And when I say the world, it's not limited only to the automotive industry. There are some larger macroeconomic conditions. Uh, like we talked about the global uh, climate crisis. Uh, the automotive industry's answer to that or contribution to that is to reduce tailpipe emissions right, as an example. So we start looking at the macro conditions, boil it down to what it means to the automotive industry, and then look at we as Magna, what role do we play today, and how do we stay relevant, and how do we continue to add value going forward? So those are some of the big questions that we look at. Then obviously we have to prioritize as we sit back and look uh, it's equally important to have a list of what to do, but also what not to do, uh, because we can do everything. Uh, so we have the discipline to say, here is where we are playing a great role today, but the industry is changing. How can we change? A good example would be, uh, we are the largest supplier today in the all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive systems in driveline. Uh, we bring power to the wheels, but the world is evolving, and as electrification comes into play, 
we are now transitioning to electric drive systems, both primary and secondary. Uh, we sit back from, uh, these are the nuts and bolts. We look at, we have a lot of assets that do gears and shafts. They can be flexible and they can add value going forward into the e-drive systems. Then we look at the vertical integration and say, what are the other pieces that we need to have to stay relevant and bring value? Uh, and that's how we do our M&A strategy or our investment strategy or our research and development activities. And we talk about you know, doing roughly about 900 million or so per year just to address some of these megatrend areas of electrification, ADAS, and so on and so forth. So it's a combination of these things. We every year go through a build-up, ground-up process. We call the business planning process where we look at all of these aspects and prioritize things that we need to do, not just for the near term, but also for the long term. We always look at, we have been around for the last 65 years, how do we stay relevant for the next 65? Obviously, technology is a very important piece of this. Can you talk about some of the technology changes that are going on right now? And especially, what does that mean for Magna? We always look at it in three buckets, uh, innovation in product, innovation in process, and more, I would say, in the last five, 10 years, innovation in data, and what does that mean, right? And it's very integral and kind of falls into the intersection of both product and process. Uh, if you look back into the history of Magna, a very proud and rich heritage of innovation in product and process. Uh, we look at the products today and goes back to what I said, look at the customer roadmap, look at the macro trends and, and talk about what are some of the uh, high-value, uh, game-changing uh, technologies. But there is equal importance to what I call the incremental improvements as we go through. Uh, we are looking at changing landscape in how the consumers, whether it's the occupants or the drivers, are using the vehicle. So what do the seats have to do? Uh, we are talking about health and wellness monitoring. So what can we do there? Uh, we are looking at legislative requirements, so we are looking at driver and occupant monitoring. How do you uh, not leave a child behind? So we look at the big questions rather than try to articulate a solution and start there. So what is the question we need to ask so we can come up with a solution, right? Uh, that's how we start our innovation process from a product perspective and as I mentioned, we have 350 manufacturing locations. That's our DNA, as you know, anybody who is, has been in the automotive industry would know. We not only make a very complex, highly engineered product, but have to think of durability. It has to withstand thousands or hundreds of thousands of miles in all types of climate conditions. Uh, so it's a very durable product that we have to make. And interestingly, we put such a complex product in the hands of a 16 or 17 year old, <laughs> right? Uh, so we got to keep all of this in mind. That means the robustness and the reliability that you need to have in the manufacturing uh, process is really immense, right? And it's uh, not articulated well enough, I think. So 
that is the other area that we are looking at. And finally, when we talk about data, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's machine learning, how do we use the data uh, that comes from the physical assets uh, to enable better decision-making, either to increase the length of the asset or to increase the safety or to improve um, you know, the things that you really need to invest when it is needed versus just following a mechanical process. Data in terms of the product, uh, you know, you talk about autonomous driving. Today, we do a lot of structured learning, right? You, you put on all the sensors and drive the vehicle uh, to learn the perception and to train the driving policy. In the future, we are getting to an unstructured learning, hopefully, right? So we don't have to drive hundreds of thousands of miles to get the optical path of a uh, ADAS system uh, before we put it in. So that's the role of data, both in product and process. So we look at all of this, and obviously we have to look at each of our product line, and that's the other significance of Magna. We have a very broad portfolio. We are in powertrain, we are in ADAS systems, we are uh, body structural systems, agnostic of materials, body and chassis. We are in mirrors, mechatronics, lighting, and more interestingly, we also contract manufacture full vehicles for OEMs. Uh, so it's a complex task, uh, but very interesting uh, for anybody who is technically inclined and want to have a phenomenal career in this interesting industry. Yes, I don't think people realize that you manufacture cars such as the Mercedes G-Class, their SUV in uh, Austria, I think, is your your plant. Uh, we have a, an interesting question from LinkedIn, and this is from Naidu Sandrana, who says, what key technology transformation initiatives are you undertaking to address this significant shift from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles? If you look at the transformation of the industry, and I said, like, we look at some broad themes, uh, what we call the car of the future. And what I mean by that is, how does the car look today? What does the consumer look for in the car? And how is it evolving going forward in the next five or 10 years? That's what kind of drives our initiatives in research and development and our thinking of the product portfolio going forward. Like I said, a good example which I started off was the driveline all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive systems today they're becoming e-drive systems. And we started this journey about eight or 10 years ago. And today we are launching, have launched and continue to launch both the primary and the secondary e-drive system for BEVs or battery electric vehicles. So that is a transition that was planned. So how we allocate capital towards it, where should we be allocating capital or some of the things that we think through this as we put the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, a lot of our product portfolio is also agnostic to some of these trends. And what I mean by that is whether you have an ICE vehicle or an electric vehicle, you're still going to have seats, you're going to have a body structure, you're going to have a chassis structure. Of course, it's going to be different. It's going to be designed differently. Materials might be different, but it's a natural evolution for us. So that's about 60, 70% of the business. Uh, but we look at each of the product line. 
uh, as we go through this long tail transition and, and plan for it. Uh, there is no uh, black and white deterministic answer to say here is A, B, and C. That's how we're doing it. it it's like I said, it's a multivariable uh, problem that we're addressing. Please go to cxotalk.com, subscribe to our newsletter, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have amazing, really great shows coming up. We have questions coming in on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let's jump over to Twitter. And this question is from Arsalan Khan. He's a regular listener and he asks excellent questions. And his question is about data. And he says, manufacturing is highly process-based. What kinds of data are you collecting, not only to improve the process, I'm assuming the manufacturing process, but to totally disrupt the process? I like to think of data as an enabler for decision-making, right? Uh, a part of the exercise is to start collecting the data. We call it the data lake for, for simplicity's sake. And the data lake would have information from all areas of a factory, let's say, right? Which means you're looking at data from ERP systems. We are looking at data from finance. We are looking at data from logistics. We are in all aspects that is required to run a factory. Uh, we call it the single source of truth because a finance person might look at inventory um, in you know, working process, how much it is, and working capital, what does it mean, and start using that data. Uh, uptime, downtime, uh, scheduled maintenance time, unplanned maintenance time will be, look at, will be looked at by the production department differently. And if you sit back and in my role, for example, we look at this data from various factories to kind of get a guidance of same product, what's SGNA, what's uh, ma you know material cost, what is uh, uptime, and start getting benchmark data and so on. So I think first it starts off by giving you a set of data so it can enable good decision-making process. And I, I think we got to have a balance to say, let's not just collect data, have a little bit of both. One, collect data and see if there are patterns that are coming through that'll help you uh, drive decisions. The other one, for example, in some machines, we put sensors that'll give us leading indicators to say we should be taking care of certain things rather than wait for uh, uh, what we call today schedule maintenance, right? It's just very deterministic. So we are being proactive about it. Uh, we are going through a digital transformation as an enterprise and you can imagine the complexity that goes through is defining each of the uh, functional areas, what data do we need and why, putting them in a platform that can be accessed by interfacing functions so they can use it, and most importantly, how do you keep this data relevant, clean, and I call it the one source of truth. So people are using the same set of data everywhere else. Uh, so that's a gargantuan task, and we are going through that process right now. Swami, you just spoke about data in relation to essentially internal processes and manufacturing. What about data that is coming in from the cars? Can you talk about automotive and vehicle data? 
I'll give an example, right? Like we, we collect data, there is a whole big question of who owns data, whether it's a consumer, whether it's the OEM, whether it's the system suppliers and so on. As I said, you know, we have the privilege of uh, interfacing with different systems in a car. And I talked a little bit about the evolution of how the design of the car is going and how the car is going to be manufactured and how the consumers are buying. So as a part of that evolution, uh, we are looking at what we consider to be highly integrated systems. What I mean by that is, if you can imagine uh, path planning uh, or uh, mapping of the routes, and you have the overlay of the information in terms of the weather, uh, you have the information that's coming from the sensors, um, like the ADA sensors, if you can integrate all of these things, the power that you can put in the hands of the consumer or uh, the ability to improve safety is immense, right? Like if you have a map and if you have the route that is already planned, uh, you have a, you know, like in our systems, the Magna system of primary or secondary drives, we provide features like torque vectoring. Uh, where do you have traction? Which wheel needs to have the power? The ability to say, I'm going to have milliseconds worth of inf information ahead of time so I can provide the power when needed, where needed, only when needed, is extremely important, right? It, it enhances the uh, ability uh, of the car to function more safely, but at the same time provide the driving experience that we as consumers expect. So this is what we're talking about, how the data plays a role in the vehicle. Uh, in our seats, for example, we are looking at uh, a way to detect uh, if there is alcohol in the breath. Uh, if there is a, uh, based on the dilation of the pupil uh, and your reaction time, uh, you already have the driver monitoring systems or the occupant monitoring systems, which can be used uh, for various purposes. So. As data comes from various systems in the vehicle, the ability to integrate them, I think the, the features and functionality that is coming is, is jaw-dropping, right? Uh, I, and I think this is going to be exponential in the next few years. What does all of this imply for Magna? Because historically, we thought about cars, vehicles, as these physical large physical objects. Now you're talking about the world of software, AI, machine learning, uh, driven by these tremendous amounts of data. So how does a company like Magna transform itself to gain the uh, these additional skills that are so different from physical car manufacturing? There is a lot of things that we are defining the, from a software and a hardware perspective. Um, so what we used to call mid-cycle enhancement is maybe a continuous cycle enhancement going forward, right? But you have to think in terms of systems and you have to architect the platform in such a way that you can do this continuous enhancement of features and functions in a vehicle. So it's not a remelt repo or uh, every design cycle. So that, that is a, a paradigm shift that has happened already, and it's only going to 
uh, accelerate going forward. Uh, one key thing for Magna, as we sit back and we are privileged to say we have multiple systems, that means we have multiple interfaces with the OEMs. We get a chance to sit with them, understand their strategic roadmap, and with most of our customers, we are able to have the discussion rather than wait for a supply sourcing decision. What is the problem that they're trying to solve and can we bring a solution to them? And we are able to do that because we are not sitting there just as a body and chassis supplier or a seat supplier or a powertrain supplier. Like I said before, we have the privilege to think like an automaker because we design full vehicles, uh, we can manufacture full vehicles for OEMs. So we have the innate ability to think like an OEM. And we also have the deep systems knowledge because we supply systems, multiple systems. So we can bring them together. In electric vehicles, for example, we are talking about battery enclosures, right? And the way the underbody or the floor is going to be defined is changing. Can the top of the battery enclosure be uh, the platform where the seat is attached? We also make seats, right? Can we integrate a bunch of these systems to reduce the redundancy where it's not applicable, bring that forward? Uh, we make sensors, we have the software in place, we make the mirrors. And that was one good example where we brought a one-box solution, as we called it, right? We already have the rear-view cameras, we already have the inside mirror. Should we have two ECUs or maybe should we just integrate it into one? and we created what we call the driver monitoring system. We're not saying we are the only one, but we bring a unique solution to it. Uh, we are talking a lot in terms of material um, information, material knowledge. I like to always say we make body and chassis structure agnostic of process and materials. What I mean by that is we are not looking at a lift gate or a door by saying I'm going to make it out of steel. Uh, we are saying, what is the right product? I can make it out of steel, I can make it out of carbon fiber, I can make it out of thermoplastic, uh, I can integrate sensors, I can integrate you know, actuators. And by doing this integration in an appropriate way, sometimes we even can provide modules to the OEMs so they can better use their manufacturing space. They don't need the longer lines. I'm not saying this is one answer fits all, but that is the beauty. We are able to provide the right solution based on the problem description that the OEM brings to us. I think that's the uniqueness of Magna, and that's what we are leveraging. So you're looking first and foremost at the ultimate function from an end user standpoint. You begin with that problem, and then you figure out the details of the materials, the design, how to manufacture it, and so forth. Is that correct? It's always about asking the right question, right? The outcome or the answer will depend very much on the question we ask. And I've used this example uh, with your permission, I'll use it again, is if you go back to the auto industry, we ask the question, how do you protect the drivers and uh, occupants in the case of an accident? Here, we already made the assumption there was going to be an accident. We are protecting people. So the answer was airbags and seat belts and so on, right? Now, with the driver assist functions and autonomy, 
we're asking the question, how do you prevent the accident from happening? And the outcome is very different, right? I believe very strongly in spending a lot of time in articulating and framing the problem correctly so we have an enduring solution and a game-changing solution and a solution that's differentiating us from everybody else. And that's exactly how we try to approach the OEMs and say, what is the problem you're trying to solve and how can we help? Rather than go say, here's the list of things I have, what can I sell to you? It's the right way to do things, but that can also be an expensive and a slow process because it requires real refinement and communication and some iteration takes time. So here's a question from uh, Elizabeth Shaw on Twitter, who's asking about how do you balance innovation against shareholder value? And let's throw in the, the expediency of time and cost. So going back to your point, how do you actually do this push it through the organization, such a large company, and maintain the, the cost and time efficiencies that you require? One of the things, yes, Magna is a very large organization, but uh, I'm a very visual person, and we have tried uh, to make it very tangible uh, internally to talk through this, and we pride ourselves in a very agile, very nimble, very entrepreneurial culture in, in our company. Uh, so rather than look at us as one large ship uh, that moves slowly. We kind of try to look at ourselves as a fleet of speedboats, uh, very well orchestrated, but have the agility and nimbleness. Very flat organization. Uh, talking a little bit about, uh, and the compensation structure is geared towards it, right? A lot of the comp uh, for our business owners at the divisional level, when I say divisional, I'm talking about the 350 plus divisions that we mentioned. Their compensation is based on the profit and loss they make in their division. So there is a lot of accountability. There is a lot of responsibility. Uh, it it kind of ties to our core values where we say, be responsible, be accountable, never settle, uh, and collaborate, right? When we have this individual entrepreneurial culture, it's equally important to collaborate and communicate openly so we can leverage the scale. Now, turning to innovation, uh, I commonly use the term when I was a CTO and a stock is, we like to fail cheap and fail fast, right? We need to have the culture that failure is okay, but we need to balance in such a way that we try a lot of things very quickly and it's acceptable to fail, but what did we learn, right? And how quickly can I put a proof of concept and fail so it doesn't go too far. We ask a lot of questions in like, we also have a term inside, uh, true innovation is commercialized invention, right? So how do you take a concept, ask all the questions like who is the customer, who is the platform, where can I put it? How are you interfacing with sales and marketing, the product line groups and manufacturing, bring all of this together. And every group has their top two or three and they have to prioritize because obviously there's a huge list of things. So we ask, so which one brings the maximum value, right? That's where the finance comes into play. Not a very simple linear process. Obviously, there is a lot of iteration that goes through this. We encourage uh, a innovation challenge day where we put up a theme 
and all 170,000 people of Magna can come up with, uh, with an idea. Uh, we help them articulate the idea, and if it gets through, we actually fund it uh, all the way, right? So there is different streams of innovation. It's very iterative. Uh, yes, there are failures, but we encourage it. Our goal is to mitigate uh, or get to the point of failure quickly rather than too late. Uh, but doesn't doesn't mean we we don't have you know failures in the late stage. But if you don't do that, you know you don't have change, and if you don't have change, you are not growing. We have uh, another question from LinkedIn. I love the audience questions. You guys in the audience, you're so smart, so intelligent, and thank you for these for all of these amazingly great questions. And this is from Kastuba Bhattacharya. He asks a very specific question, but maybe we can generalize it. He says, while you speak about electric drives for electric vehicles, would you share some light on why Toyota chose not to go for EVs and is going for hybrid uh instead being more viable. So you may not be able to talk about Toyota, but maybe you can generalize the, the, the question. The intent of electrification in the automotive industry was to address, you know, uh, global climate crisis. And we did so by uh, getting to zero tailpipe emissions, right? Uh, the electric drives were one way of getting there. It doesn't mean it's the only way. Uh, the, the hydrogen or other ways uh, are, of course, being considered and they'll continue to evolve. Uh, but specifically to the question, I think, you know, like I said, the industry was primarily driven by regulation and legislation in the past, right? So you had CAFE requirements, you had fleet emission requirements. So you always balance that with ICE versus hybrid. And in hybrid, we have various forms like micro hybrid, you know, plugins and you know, only start-stop features to coast and sail functions and, you know, to 40 kilometers or 40 miles of range in your hybrids. So this was all a evolutionary process. And over the last two or three years, it accelerated to a point where the industry's thought process is, if we truly want a electric vehicle, it cannot be based on an existing platform. It needs to be thought through in its purest form. What is the best way to achieve this? And, and we are seeing the result um, today. So I, I think it's uh, different ways to address the problem. Uh, there is, I believe, a long tail. doesn't matter who you talk to, whether it's take rates of 30, 40, or 50%, there is a significant piece of uh, the non-electric uh, fleet that will be on the roads for some time. And, and I think it's all towards uh, reducing emissions, I think, overall and trying to make it as efficient as possible. And different OEMs have different strategies. I heard a reporter ask, say, that you're one of, you're one of the suppliers that if Apple were to build a, an electric car, they'd probably be talking to you. Any, any comment on that? As we're talking about the new entrants, Michael, there's a lot of new entrants, as you know, that are coming into the industry, including the existing OEMs as they're talking about transitions uh, in their platforms, addressing EVs and, and so on and so forth. Uh, all I can say is a, a lot of them have conversations with us. A lot of them are at the table. 
And as you know, we, we made some announcements on some of the new entrants along with our existing customers. You talked about the G-Wagon. We make the Jaguar I-Pace and E-Pace. We make the BMW 5 Series. We just kind of you know, got towards the end of the, uh, the, the production life cycle. So it's, it's a combination of them. So definitely we're at the table with all OEMs, whether they're new or old. We have two questions now that are basically uh, the same. One is from Arsalan Khan on Twitter, and the other one is from Kastuba Bhattacharya. And they're both asking about data and the use of data. Kastuba wants to know, uh, he says, all this telemetry that cars can collect can tell the insurance companies uh, all all kinds of different things that can tilt the relationship in favor of the automaker as opposed to the consumer. And he wants to know how to balance uh, the the use of data and the impact on the participants. And then Arsalan Khan is saying, are there opportunities for sharing this telemetry data with uh, the government for positive reasons, such as uh, weather? Any, any thoughts on the, this data issue? There is a war for data. Everybody is trying to put their stake in the ground to uh, claim the ownership of the data, whether it's a consumer who has paid for the car and therefore the data we generate while we are driving uh, versus the OEM. And I think this will all lead to what I would consider new business models, right? Uh, and who accepts to willingly give data and therefore what do I get in return? Uh, but there is also pay-for-service type of thinking. Uh, I always give a simple example. I think if you're looking for uh, trailer detection when you have all the sensors in the car, you might not use it all the time, but you're using the same sensor suite and everything uh, for your normal regulatory purposes, for your normal driving on an everyday basis. But for that one-off or two-off occasions when you need that uh, lining up to your trailer and you use a feature function, you could pay only for that service for that time. So that's just one example. I think there is a lot more of that coming and how the business model will evolve. It remains to be seen, right, uh, who, who owns the data and how these models are going to evolve. Very interesting about the business models and also the impact on a supplier like Magna, which, you know, I'm sure you have ideas. Uh, we don't really have the time to, to get into it now, but I'm, but it seems like there are a lot of unforse- potential unforeseen paths into the future regarding the, this business model issue. Absolutely, Michael. I think it's not just about uh, supplying software or supplying hardware or supplying an integrated software hardware system. It, like I said, we always need to think in terms of what is the end user feature and function and how do you enable it, and how do you keep it fresh? Whoever has that answer uh, will have an advantage, right? And I think uh, the industry is definitely going in that direction, and we all are working towards that. Can we finish up with advice to CTOs? You were a CTO, you have an engineering background, now you're the CEO of this very large organization. What advice do you have for chief technology officers? I would like to think of a chief technology officer as a leader, 
And just like any leader, you need to have certain leadership traits, right? You, you know, being able to challenge the status quo, uh, having an understanding of what you're doing, how does it impact other functions, uh, have the humility. Um, I always say have the continuing uh, appetite to learn and question everything. And know your be self-aware, know your strengths and know your weaknesses. Uh, if you think you're technically highly qualified, I'm sure there are other areas that you need to learn, whether it's operations or finance or something else. Uh, Complement your team with that strength and you know, give credit where it's due. Uh, when credit, it's time to give credit, you stand back. And when it's time to take, especially being a CTO, you're bound to make um, some proof of concepts that will not go the way you want it, it's time to stand up and take responsibility uh, for the team. I, I think that's what uh, gives you the chance to try different things and get no noticed by the organization. Swami, we have a last minute question that came in uh, very, very, very quickly. Uh, Sherry Novick would like to know about your strategies for building design and in innovation capabilities and attracting critical talent to develop the skills needed for transformation, business, customer-centric, agile, data. Very quickly, strategies for attracting this kind of talent. I think we start actually trying to get students from the high school level, right? Because they are interviewing us as much as we interview them. Uh, so we invest all the way from that time on. Uh, in terms of talent, the one thing we try to give exposure to as much, uh, you know, population as possible of the different things you can do in Magna. Because I think people come to work because they want to feel accomplished at the end of the day and have a wide variety of things they can do. So whether you're marketing or finance or mechanical engineering or any aspect of education, we like to show them that you have a path in Magna. That's the one way to do it and keep it simple, keep the organization flat. And it, whether it's continuous training, continuous learning through various initiatives, uh, that, that fire to say you need to be constantly learning if you have the aptitude for that, Magna is the right place. That is the message we try to articulate and communicate. If you're constantly learning and self-aware, go to Magna. Yes. And with that, a huge thank you to Swami Kodagiri. He is the CEO of Magna International. Swami, thank you so much for taking your time to be with us. I really, really appreciate that. Thanks, Michael. It was my pleasure. Everybody. Thank you for watching, especially those folks in the audience who ask such excellent questions. You guys are just a, an amazing audience. Now, before you go, please go to cxotalk.com, subscribe to our newsletter, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have amazing, really great shows coming up. Check it out, and we will see you again next time. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day.